Hello, welcome to Candy Gel. I'm Marcus Puskar. Last time on the show, we introduced Clarence Saunders and his invention, the supermarket. We broke down the new mode of food production that emerged to fit the needs that the supermarket created, such as the explosions of processed food and marketing. We explored the way that Piggly Wiggly and the supermarket led to the commodification of food, and how the introduction of the aisle and shelves set the conditions for shoppers to come to their own decisions about food, rather than relying on grocers, family traditions, or familiarity with local producers. In other words, choice was introduced as a sort of virtue. Today, we'll be pivoting to talk about the underlying ideal that led to the proliferation of the supermarkets that followed in the footsteps of Piggly Wiggly, efficiency. In discussing efficiency, the main character of our story now shifts from Clarence Saunders to Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. Our guest today, Jesse LeCavalier, will help us to investigate Walmart's ethos and impact through one unusual entry point, architecture. Jesse is a professor of urban design at Cornell University and the author of Rule of Logistics, Walmart and the Architecture of Fulfillment. He studies the impact that Walmart has had on our built environment. In other words, what does the pursuit of efficiency manifest itself as? How does a giant corporation like Walmart make its operations happen? And what concrete, real implications does that have on our built world? Here's Jesse explaining this. I was trying to think about the ways to to study it and, and try to understand what its impacts were. And I, so I, I was looking, I was thinking about these different entities that um, have an impact on the built environment that are logistical in organization and in mindset. And Walmart, at first glance, doesn't necessarily seem that way because it's a retailer ostensibly. But when I was just trying to understand what they were doing and I was seeing that they were occupying these top positions in the Forbes 500 list for like years in a row. And I think they're in the, in the past few years, they're, they're still up there in the number one or number two, number three spot. They're, they're always kind of competing with different organizations, but, but a few years ago they had like a solid anchor at number one because their and their income is astonishing 500, $480 billion, I think last year. And so even though we hear a lot about the sort of Amazons and the Teslas and of the, the world that the Walmart is still just like quietly doing their, doing their thing as the, one of the largest companies in the world. And one of the ways that that happened is spatial. I mean, basically they, they, they have a, this really vast network of physical buildings that are both the ones you can shop in, but also the ones that serve all those buildings that you shop in. And so that was a kind of initial, just like information finding question, like how do they do that? Like, how do you build out any buildings as quickly as they needed to? I mean, at a certain point, like in 20, mid, mid 20 teens, 2015 or something, they were building like three buildings a week. If you like average it out, it doesn't, it's not like they're doing that exactly in that way, but, but the, you know, if you average out the number of stores per year, it's really astonishing. And so, so this led me to wondering what led me to the number of questions around how they even organize this. By focusing on Walmart's architecture, we can take a peek behind the curtain and see the ethos guiding Walmart in action. In this sense, we aren't talking about the abstract. We can very clearly see how the decision makers at Walmart see the world and how they then go about resolutely, tangibly changing it, making it in their image. This is at the heart of Jesse's book, that Walmart's logistical, efficiency-obsessed world has a firm physical imprint on our own. As Jesse notes in his book, Walmart's retail locations, that is, not including its data or distribution centers, now have a physical fingerprint substantially larger than Manhattan. They have distribution centers that, in one day, turn enough product to fill the largest possible freighter to move through the Panama Canal. I'll rephrase and repeat. The largest container ships that go through the Panama Canal can hold about what goes through 
the Bentonville, Arkansas distribution center on any given day. So just imagine that every day enough merchandise moves through just one distribution center to account for an entire freighter. All that stuff requires infrastructure and a ton of planning and data on customers and what they might want. In Jesse's words, even buying a pack of gum is, quote, just one moment in an entire network of prediction, measurement, and calculation that is perpetuated by a collective willingness to sustain it through our habits, our desires, and the consumer data we generate. That requires a massive, coordinated physical space to make happen, and perhaps even more of a reliance on implicit consent to include Walmart in the shaping of our private lives. The two come together, the physical infrastructure and the commitment to logistics that make it possible. Because what is being transported and shuttled at breakneck speeds is the stuff of our lives, the food and the stuff that are sold to us both as products and as a guiding ethos on how to live. And the environment that Walmart has built is evidence of a worldview that is increasingly supported in physical manifestations around us. It is a communication, a means to an end. So, at some point, the abstract ideas of logistics and efficiency run into human lives. Whether that is in the form of laborers that are asked to be the vessels through which efficient movement is created by, or people consuming the products and foods that are deemed efficient enough for scalability. This is how the rule of logistics expands into our private lives. Recall from episode one that Clarence Saunders helped birth consumerism by introducing choice between nearly identical products. Within this new way of procuring food, a sense of responsibility and weight, however marginal, was implicitly placed on consumers, now presumably being charged as highly rational decision makers. What Sam Walton did was take the idea of choice and push it to its limit, creating a system in which cost was king and all else an afterthought. Let's get into the impacts of that logic. When we amplify our purchasing decisions to a societal scale, seemingly insignificant habits and tendencies take on a much larger weight. When those decisions are prodded along by actors that predict and encourage your behavior, we can see our decision-making converted into a sort of collective power, one that we all play a role in shaping. At least, we're told as much. While I was reading through Jesse's work, I found this quote that I think can be applied to capture the scale of change and influence that the commercialized food system has brought upon us, a system that is increasingly made in Sam Walton's image and the ideals of efficiency that he has passed on to us. The quote comes from historian Siegfried Gideon. Quote, these modest things of everyday life accumulate into forces acting upon whoever moves within the orbit of our civilization. The slow shaping of daily life is of equal importance to the explosions of history. For, in the anonymous life, the particles accumulate into an explosive force. End quote. So, let's try to bring some of these particles of daily life into focus, and look critically at how our private lives are shaped, both by the built environments we engage with and the objects that move through them. As we grow up, we see things happening around us in a certain way. We then conform to them, the same way everyone else around us does. There are massive, sometimes unspoken, quote, explosions of history happening around us at all times. But when much of that is relegated to private life, the basic mundanity of it all, it may go unnoticed. It's the soup we swim in. It's hard to even notice it. We may just default to assuming that this is the way that things have always been, or at least implicitly believe that if we live in a world dominated by Walmart, then it must be for a reason. But in our case, many of the ways that the slow shaping of everyday life takes place is by the initiative of institutions such as Walmart. 
When over 240 million people pass through a Walmart on a weekly basis, we have to ask how that is changing the way that our private lives take place. How is something on such a massive scale even possible? How did it come about? Let's engage in an exercise in which we can learn more about ourselves by looking at how we've changed to accommodate Walmart. If Clarence Saunders influenced our private lives by inaugurating consumerism, wherein choice became a sort of inalienable right, Walton did it by conveying to his customers an unyielding dedication to efficiency and thrift. He implied to them that the goods he procured by minimizing all obstacles to cost were the best path forward. Choice then, after having just been introduced as an essential part of the modern American experience, suddenly became extremely narrowed and confined by the limits that the pursuit of efficiency created. Saunders created the condition for the items to be put on the shelf, and Walton's business practices made sure that those were as cheap as possible, regardless of how that impacted our built environment, private lives, and ecology. This is how the rule of logistics came to enter our homes and kitchens. So how did he go about introducing this massive change to the way we live? Walton conveyed an ethos to customers that was the continuation of the professed ideals of Clarence Saunders. That is, that thrift and a willingness to do the work of shopping were indicative of a sensible person. The kind of mythology of Sam Walton, Saunders was this kind of, played the, the role of the everyman in the sense that he was seeing himself as an advocate for the everyday person. He was, you know, in the words of Walmart, he was helping people save money so they could live better. He was um, trying to cut costs. Like all of this was about saving consumers money. Like that was the argument for self-service is that you would take all the labor costs away from people working behind the counter and you would you would be willing, you would basically ask people to volunteer to do that work in exchange for saving money. So they would do, do a little more work than usual, but in, uh, the result would be that they would save, they would save costs at the end of the process. The shoppers of Walmart and Piggly Wiggly were engaged in a symbiotic relationship with the emergent supermarket giants. By showing a willingness to work and save money, they could convey their own moral stances on ideas such as hard work and thrift. Walton played the everyman when he insisted to people that lowering costs was, to him, a sort of duty. In turn, the shoppers engaged in a bargain, so to speak, where the externalities that came with low costs would be outweighed by the savings, whether they needed them for subsistence or simply as a means to accrue more money. So, only in a society deeply tied to the idea that saving money at every turn was virtuous and moral could such ideas take off. Here's Jesse explaining one of the ways that this manifested in the sense of, of putting all of their inventory on display and asking people to, to make the, the selections, but also in, in terms of really using the, the language of savings to pass, to like reorganize the labor of the store. So to put more work on the part of the consumer or to, to as, a, as a way of broadcasting their effort to cut costs, not investing anything in say like the design of the buildings or in the the space of so the space, especially the early Walmarts are super bare bones. They're really just these like warehouse interiors uh, in some cases. And this is one of the things that Walton became more known for the not even putting things on shelves, just like bringing the pallet out into the, the corridor or the, what they called action alley. Uh, and then just sort of taking the lid off of it. So, you know, these kinds of things of just like producing this sort of sense of immediacy and, and no frills as a kind of aesthetic that communicated to the consumer that all of this was in service of reducing reducing costs. And then they had a number of, of loss leader products where they were like way below margin that you could then would sort of produce, produce that evidence on the part of the consumer that this is what was happening. 
It's a bit like Tom Sawyer, convincing his peers that painting the fence was great fun, and thus tricking them into taking over the chore for him. But that trade-off has a cost, one that we should consider. When entire supply chains are set up to save money for businesses and customers, the products being moved along those lines are alienated from both consumer and producer. So what does engaging in this Faustian bargain entail? What do we give up when we structure our private lives around efficiency? When we turn our source for food into something that is designed first and foremost to cut costs, we end up eating, quite literally, cheaper food, with less variety and resemblance to how we've always eaten. We are robbed of spaces that have traditionally been vibrant sources of meeting and exchange. As Jesse puts in his dissertation, the built environment of Walmart, quote, offers an image of architecture designed almost purely as infrastructure. Efficiency, in this sense, is engaged in a zero-sum struggle with aesthetic consideration. More traditional places of food procurement and Walmart both hypothetically serve the same function. But to demonstrate how the pursuit of efficiency radically changes this place in terms of architectural function, let's return to the pallet being dropped in Action Alley. I think that image of a pallet being dumped unceremoniously in a warehouse captures how extremely different the experience of getting food has become. I imagine that this was a big step in our separation from the food that we eat. It captures the removal of humanity from food, especially when we consider that this was deliberate action on the part of Walmarts. It was a signal, the form of Walton advertising his commitment to efficiency. If you can, imagine instead a vibrant marketplace somewhere in the global south, where supermarkets are not yet ubiquitous. Imagine the color, the bright orange and green everywhere, the exchange of greetings, the hustle and bustle, farmers proudly curating an array of produce. Now imagine that produce wheeled into the middle of a floor, so deliberately removed from its human origins that you feel like it's less valuable. And it is less valuable. The exchange has been removed. And actually, we don't have to imagine life on another continent. That type of exchange and community existed in towns and cities all across the U.S. But those markets were not as efficient as Walmart. They were systems that were not being utilized to their full capacity as engines of a logistical machine. Markets are unorganized and chaotic. They're decentralized. They require levels of human interaction that are far from efficient. It's very clear that any kind of industrialized food process is, is reducing biodiversity, is, is interfering with future foodways, is interfering with all sorts of, of ecological systems, is, is certainly um, moving toward a kind of flattening of our own, our own set of experiences. So, and I think that's a, that's a kind of behavioral trait of large-scale industrial logistics is that, that there's that things like uncertainty and things like risk, error, all these things are, are things to try to be eliminated. And the more you know, unique something is, the more prone it is to risk and error and uncertainty. And so, so I think that's the, it seems like the, the kind of art that they're pursuing is balancing, producing in a sort of sense of abundance without actually having to provide it, um, you know, just enough to be able to sort of plausibly describe what they're doing. But now, in the system Walton and Saunders have created, the sense of ownership over the end product is removed. It becomes cold and calculating, perhaps most embodied by the warehouse that the food is plopped in, a place intentionally void of any frills. To further show how far Walmart has gone in removing humanity from its shopping experience, here's Raj Patel from the first episode, looking at one specific manifestation of a correction that Walmart has attempted to make. Uh, you know, it, it's <clears throat> even Walmart recognizes that it it lives in a place that is deadening to the soul, which is why you have greeters at the front. Um, uh, you know, the, the sort of retirees who want for some sort of human connection and are there to provide it to you because you want it too. 
and just for a moment, uh, they've again, the, the, all the human connection that used to be with that person over the counter who was also informing you and educating you and telling you stuff is now, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's been split up. So the human connection is just one person, the people stocking the shelves is another, the knowledge is elsewhere, uh, and you are a pawn in that system. Uh, you know, it, it's the perfect, I mean, it, it is capitalism reach, reaching its zenith of specialization. Uh, if you want warmth and human tenderness, then there's a retiree over there who will, um, you know, will welcome you to the store. Uh, if you want efficiently filled shelves, then here are some underpaid, um, folk who are you know working this job and two others in order to be able to make bank to be able to afford uh, prescriptions you know it's it's a ridiculous series of specializations and you're right um, in in losing the kinds of human connection that you can find in markets in the third world for example in the global south um, markets are places of, of really interesting and fun socialization uh, for vendors and for shoppers alike um, no one feels that in a Walmart that's not what it's for With the old greeter in mind, it's interesting to consider some of the first motives Walton had in making his places as bare bones as possible, places that would eventually require old people to make them seem human at all. It was form imitating meaning, communicating that no sort of excesses were worth raising prices over. This was a pretty unprecedented shift from other titans of the American economy. I mean, I think in the context that I was trying to situate it, it was around these kind of these these sort of representative corporations that were exemplary of something in the moment in which they were thriving. So um, GM is a product of the assembly line and this idea of kind of American technological ascendance being highly visible on a world stage. And so as a result, there was, and there was also a need to, to position the automobile as a consumer um, object, something you could actually you know, afford and that that had lifestyle uh, associations attached to it, that this was not only a, a beautiful, well-built machine, but it would also make your life better and it would make you cooler and, and more attractive and all these things that advertising does. And so as a result, they, they found some of the best architects of the time were the most you know popular to to build a, a space for that that would really showcase the not just the object but also the process of making it uh, in a way that would that would render it a kind of magical object and I mean I think Sears is another story because of the the kind of highly visible architectural representations of their their organization like the Sears Tower so uh, Walmart was deliberately not interested in corporate representation that way. They were really interested in the kind of showing up on people's, you know, on the edge of cities and things like that, but not in a way that felt like they were um, designed. And I, I have a sense that that's related to a certain anti-elitism that Walton uh, professed, that, that he was against uh, that as an expense, basically. By suggesting that totally functional design was more helpful to customers than the extravagances of Sears and GM, Walmart birthed a sort of American brutalism that has taken over strip malls and warehouses all across the continent. A design informed, more than anything, by function. As Jesse pointed out, this was populist appeal by Walton. By presenting itself in its most utilitarian form, as nothing more than a way to keep the weather out, Walmart's buildings are efficiency embodied in architectural form. Function has replaced craftsmanship, whimsy, and expression in the same way that a Soviet apartment building might have. This approach, of course, has lowered costs. This is now spread all across retail, 
with Walmart creating conditions for a race to the bottom in terms of how to be most efficient, how to remove any excesses or uncertainty from the places that we go to to get the stuff that fills our lives. Locality and anything that makes a place unique also becomes an obstacle to operating. In his book, Jesse points out that Walmart doesn't see its potential localities for their uniqueness, but for what makes them equivalent. So in this sense, Walmart's pursuit of efficiency acts as the great flattener of human tastes. By making us more predictable, we can help them run their business as smoothly as possible. It's built into the structures of capitalism to seek out further to seek out ever increasing efficiencies. And so as a result, then it becomes, and as it becomes sort of embedded in our own way of life, you know, here in in the US, especially, then it acquires what you're describing, it acquires a kind of moral tone. So to be inefficient um, is somehow to, you know, to be kind of immoral or, or and I think that's really a, a problem. And so I think we have to find ways to seek out other pathways beyond that. And I think that this is what my, you know, my own suspicions about um, any kind of technophilic response to something that says, you know, well, now that we, now that we have enough technology or we have enough of this, we have enough information, whatever it is that says, you know, we've accumulated enough of something and now we can address the problem. I think this has always been the mindset of, of any one of these organizations that it's always about getting enough of something to then do something else. But it just it tends to sort of repeat the same patterns over and over again, and so, so I don't I think that's where something like seeking out inefficiency as a goal is meaningful because it it offers some sort of sort of glimpse into some other way of thinking about the relations that go into making and distributing and sharing food. That's something that happens, um, you know, in all these ways. It doesn't and it it doesn't need to be connected to this kind of. Um, uh, the the efficiency models of extraction uh, and industrialization. So I mean I think these are um, these are really essential questions, um, and and it's really hard to think outside of it because it's so um, it's. But there's I think there's a lot of really amazing people doing a lot of amazing work in that space, uh, thinking outside of efficiency models in a way in ways that are much more productive you know, much more nourishing, much more sustainable uh, and a longer term way. And I think this is where we need to go. But it, it can't it's um, I think that the kind of relentlessness of these of these large organizations makes it um, a real challenge. Today, when we think about efficiency, we perceive it as a virtue. It conjures images of insightfulness, business savvy, even respectability. To some extent, this reflects the American axiom, coined by none other than Benjamin Franklin, that time is money, one of the many lessons that he passed on to Americans to encourage him to be thrifty and efficient. So when Franklin so graciously commodified time for generations to come, he instilled a truism that whoever saves the most of it is an upstanding American. Among other things, his advice also encouraged the saving of money in order to grow it. His advice was well taken, as he ended up blazing a trail that would lead to the slogan, Save money, live better. Sam Walton truly believed that he would be making people's lives better by allowing them to save as much as possible. He then structured his entire business, and by extension, a massive part of our collective infrastructure, to make the goal of saving costs wherever possible a reality. 
It's a world where efficiency and cost-effectiveness dictate much of our private lives, our lived experiences. Only with this in mind can we see exactly what Walmart does for us. Our food has undergone a radical transformation to fit the needs of efficiency. Sam Walton built out an empire premised on the idea that people would conform to Benjamin Franklin's guidance and mold their private lives to demonstrate thrift, frugality, and expedience. He could not have been more correct in this assessment. But now, 60 years into the transformative Walmart experience, we can begin to assess what trade-offs we've made. Customers have indeed saved money, but I'll let you decide if that has led them to live better. So here's the thing. Efficiency, as we've described it today, as a means to lower costs and maximize profits, only matters to supermarkets for those exact purposes. This is not to confuse business efficiency with resource efficiency. That is to say, they're using the language of efficiency self-servingly, in a very narrow concept of the term. What gets signaled to us, imagining corporations that are so tightly run that nothing gets through the cracks, are, in reality, organizations that work to use the PR of efficiency to conceal the fact that they are woefully wasteful. Next week, we'll be getting into the way that an entire shadow industry of food waste has been set up in order to process the waste created by supermarkets and magically turn it into tax write-offs. Because the difference between being ecologically resource efficient and financially efficient are often directly at odds with one another. We'll begin tying the stories of Saunders and Walton into the story of astronomical waste. That story, the story of willful waste, is what sparked my interest in this topic, what motivated me to share it. While regularly picking up, sorting, and distributing the excesses of our food system, it becomes apparent that there's something that doesn't add up. How can businesses that make a point of cutting costs at every turn, by restricting wages, setting up a logistical empire with the goal of preventing any excesses, discard their product in unquantifiable excess? It's been a challenge writing this show, to think about companies like Walmart, and the precision with which they monitor every part of their supply chain while also trying to consider the thousands of pounds of perfectly edible food I know untold thousands of volunteers are helping to rescue from those very companies on a weekly basis. To wrap things up, I just wanted to quickly point out that it's a lot easier to begin the process of being an efficient business when you start out with a loan from your father-in-law that would now be worth $337,000. It's just like Ben Franklin says, money is of the prolific, generating nature. Money can beget more money. Not everyone has the tools to be that efficient, though. But good for Sam Walton. Thank you to Jesse LeCavalier for joining me. Check out his book, The Rule of Logistics. The history of logistics are way more interesting than I could have ever imagined. And Jesse's a great writer. Check it out. This has been Candy Joe. I'm Marcus Puskar. Thanks for listening.
country restroom on the radio I got a number on my name, it's hard to rise above the shame I'm a branded man made in the mold These terms engulf the waking mind Like cherry, grape, and lemon lime Like candy corn and licorice Like bubble gum and Swedish fish It happens to me all the time Living in a candy jail with peppermint bars 